How many of you have someone in your life that likes to give you a piece of their mind? I bet we all do. I'm going to ask in a different way. How many of you have a favorite piece of lasagna or a favorite piece of brownie? Now, what I mean is, some people like the centerpiece, right? Some people like the edges. So when someone asks me, for instance, uh, I'd like to give you a piece of my mind, I want to say to them, thank you, can I choose which piece? <laughs> right? Because it's not that I don't want to hear anything that they have to say. It's just that sometimes I realize that my life is about to get harder because of what they think is important and has to be said. Can you relate to that? Right? How many times do you think after you finish a conversation like that, you think, I don't know if that helped either one of us. I think we might both be in worse shape than we were when we started. Does this sound familiar? And what really gets frustrating is when the topics that you're talking about actually matter. Sure, it would have been nice if you could have helped each other, right? But for some reason, we couldn't. So what we're working on is this idea of what does it mean to have this life together where we are indifferent to what it might require of us for the common good of all. We looked at this ninth commandment yesterday, right? And the way that scripture in Torah defines it, and that's the whole idea. It absolutely means tell the truth, don't lie, but why? For what reason, right? And the whole idea was is so that the community is benefited by the way we engage with each other. So I want you to look at this. I thought this was helpful. A Jewish rabbinical commentary on the ninth commandment says, The one who bears false witness against one's neighbor commits as serious a sin as if one had borne false witness against God, saying that God did not create the world. Uh, just breathe that in. Isn't that fascinating? Bearing false witness says something about the way you are speaking against God. We often don't put it in that context. When people lie out of self-interest, their deceptive behavior becomes a social norm. Lying is socially contagious in that when people see the precedent that dishonesty is appropriate, they are more likely to lie themselves. So looking at research projects surrounding this idea of bearing a true witness, these research projects, and you can imagine this, they all kind of at some point kind of rotate around the idea of consequences, right? Is there a benefit to bearing true witness? Is there a consequence to bearing false witness? And I found this one particularly insightful. That lying becomes contagious when it appears like everyone's doing it, right? That it kind of becomes this social norm. One of the predictors that they gave in the research is kind of this repetitive affirmation. Hey, did you know this? And you think to yourself, that ain't true. And then they repeat it. Did you know this? And you think to yourself, I don't think that's true. But they repeat it so many times that eventually, listen carefully, you lose confidence in your ability to discern what's true and what's not. So when you hear 
When you hear newscasters and podcasters talking about how they use bots, right, to replicate posts on social media, that's the theory behind it. That the repetition wears down your confidence and your ability to discern a simple truth. That's important, isn't it? So one of the things we're going to try to work on right now is the ninth commandment, truth as a way of life. So I think this will be fun. Let's go into this together. Yesterday we established the biblical intent for indifference is a compassion-based courage to engage for the common good. That's what we're doing. Now, I didn't talk about this yesterday, so I need to uh, highlight this today. Notice we did not say, have the courage to be compassionate. Here's why. Research shows that emotion precedes cognition in humans globally. Emotion precedes cognition. We feel stronger than we think. So it's extremely important for us to realize that it's actually compassion that will make us courageous rather than somehow being courageous will make us compassionate. There has to be the why. And the why is the compassion. Think about the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he did X. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yeah. How many of you have heard someone especially especially a young father or mother share their thoughts about communion and talk about God giving his only son. They're a new parent, and they think, I could never do that. Right? I could never do that. Because they can't imagine any scenario that would would somehow cause them to give up their child for someone else. But the miracle of it is that God did. So God says, well, let me explain. You see, my compassion drove me to that. My love is why I did it. So the courageous engagement that we want is rooted in love. So let's take this a few steps further. The only hope for a shared good is a conversational life. We cannot have genuine congregational life together without vibrant conversational life together. I'm going to leave that up there. I just want you to process it a little bit. You know this is not original. Right? This comes out of uh, scripture. This comes out of centuries of, of Christian writing. You remember in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous book, Life Together. One of the things he warns about is that your dream of the Christian community would become more important to you than the Christian community. And he says, if that happens, your dream will destroy the Christian community. Right? So he said, the thing you got to realize is, is that we're here, so we need to know each other, and we need to want to know each other, and people will know if you want to know them. So conversational life is the key to congregational life. We are more adept, let's admit, in our skills to talk about others, around others, behind others, to others, at others, and over others. But what we really need is a new skill set to talk with, us, with others, right? So I'm going to leave this up for a moment because I want you to kind of breathe it in. Research models demonstrate that our reluctance to talk with each other is tied to our desire to fit in and belong. 
So when they do research projects where they have people answer in group settings, in group settings, then the tendency is for there to be more conformity because what are people concerned about? I don't want to lose my group over an opinion. But when they have them vote or apply their opinion privately, well then, the statistics are radically different on where people actually fall out. One of the research projects had to do with kidney organ donation. Kidney organ donation. One of the questions was, why are there so many kidneys that have been donated that actually end up being disposed of because they are not used by a recipient? Are there, are there that many defective kidneys? Well, it turns out that wasn't what was happening. What was happening was the first person on the list would reject the kidney. But there was no place for them to, to tell why. So as soon as one person rejected the kidney, what's the next person on the list thing? Mm -hmm. whoa, whoa, there must be something wrong with the kidney. Well, they did this all the way down to like person 18 and 19 that were rejecting it, and they're thinking to themselves, if 18 people have rejected that kidney, it's a bad kidney. What they didn't understand was person number one might have had the flu. Person number two might have been out of town. Person number three might have had a funeral and death in a family. You get where we're going with this? And because they have no idea as to why people rejected the kidney, because that wasn't shared, then what took over? The group must be right about the kidney. That's something that matters, would you not agree? How many of you have known someone on, a, on an organ transplant list? Look at all of them. Can you imagine finding out that the organ you or your loved one needed was disposed of? And we never knew that there was nothing wrong with it. You see, you have to learn how to talk with each other. How many of you are familiar with this bill that was just passed on the 29th of March, 2022? Okay, did, 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 I see some of you saw it, some of you didn't. Now, to put this into perspective, this anti-lynching bill has been put before our nation's uh, legislature for over 100 years and over 200 attempts, okay? Now, the reason it's named the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill is because August 28, 1955, uh, Emmett Till was brutally murdered by two men in Money, Mississippi. Now, if you know the story, Emmett Till had just arrived in Mississippi. He was from Chicago, but his family was from Mississippi. Those of you that know those immigration patterns remember that Chicago was called Little Mississippi because there was a direct line between the families in the two locales. He went south to visit his family. He's 14 years old. He goes into a store to buy candy, and a woman at the store, Carolyn Bryant, claimed that he flirted with her. And she told a story about him flirting with her and touching her hand. Well, her husband, Roy, and his half-brother 
find out about it. A few days later, they kidnap Emmett Till. They torture him, brutally murder this boy, and then throw him in a river with a giant fan as an anchor to hold his body down. When they find his body and they bring it up out of the river, his mom makes the decision to take the body back to Chicago and hold an open casket funeral. That decision, though his body was viewed by thousands of people personally and millions worldwide, it is credited as being one of the why motivating reasons of the advancement of the civil rights movement launching, as you remember, not long after that with the Montgomery bus boycott. Now, does that help us come up to speed a little bit? So one of the questions was, why do you call it lynching? Right? Because, see, in my mind, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, so I grew up just north of here. How many of you know a little bit about the history of the state of Oregon? Do you know a little bit about this? Oregon's one of the most racist states in the nation. I don't know if you know that. And I'm from there, so I get to talk about my people, right? And so when Oregon was being formed as a state, we actually had state legislators that tried to get it put into the Oregon Constitution that people of color would not be allowed in the state. Those that already lived there would have to move out. How many of you knew that about my home state? That's the thing. You know, things happen, right? So growing up, when I thought about lynching, let me tell you what I thought. It was the way, the mode of execution. Someone was what? Hanged. Right? So I wasn't thrown off that much. When I was at Emory University and I was in graduate school and I read The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone, you know, it kind of made some sense, right? Jesus is what? Hanged on a? Tree, right on a cross, right? Depending on which part of the New Testament you read, hang on a pole, hang on a tree. So I thought, okay, that makes sense. But I didn't understand it at all. So I had an opportunity with two of our sons to go to Macon, Georgia, to an event that actually marked a famous lynching that had to do with this theater. There in front of that theater, they put the names of the people that had been lynched in that district and marked their names. Two of our sons is there. You see the one on the left, that's Jerome, and then our next son next to him is Aaron. They're both the same age right now. And so we went together. And one of the things they emphasized about lynching was it doesn't have to do with the mode of death or even death itself. It had to do with the rule of law, the failure of due process. I didn't know that. That's what it was about. It was about that people abandoned the rule of law and abandoned due process. So that how someone was supposedly convicted was against the law. I didn't know that part. The second thing, it didn't have to do with whether they were guilty or innocent. If they were guilty, that did not affirm breaking the law. So I thought about that. 
And I thought, I wonder if this could be a conversation point for our Pepperdine lecture, right? I thought, what if we could talk about that? Because some people, I discovered, when they wrote their opinions about this, they didn't think we needed this law. Now, there's two primary reasons. Number one, they argued that we already had laws that covered this, right? That we already have these laws. They're already on the books. And then the second thing they suggested was, is that you're naming it the wrong thing. That the word lynching, it doesn't resonate, right? It's an antiquated word. But then other people were like, oh, no, 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 we absolutely need this. Look at what happened in my new home state where I've been for 25 years, Ahmad Arbery, what happened with him in Georgia, right? So you look at that and somebody says, ah, that sounds like Emmett Till, right? A group of people get together, they chase someone down, it's, it lacks due process, they have no evidence, and they, they murder somebody, right? So somebody else says, oh, no, 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 we absolutely need this on the front burner. How many of you kind of have, have, would see how people could talk about this law in this way, right? But then here's another question, and this came up yesterday. We all realize that in the Bible, the rule of law serves the rule of love. So what if... In our world, our nation, our communities, and our churches, we discovered that having that law wasn't just a good legal precedent, it was healing. What if we discovered that? That it was healing. Now try to imagine the ride home. So we drove to Macon, all right? We had the whole day together. And then that evening, we were going to a, an in-town discussion dinner back in Atlanta. So our two sons, these two, we have five children, by the way, and these are two middle ones, were driving back up, and so I asked them to share what that day meant to them. And you can imagine that all three of us experienced it with some overlap and some difference. Now imagine how odd it would have been for us to be in the car and to try to convince each other that we should have seen it exactly the same way. Come on. Wouldn't that have been odd? For me to look at my boys and to say to them, well, you know, because I'm older, here's how it really is. Or for Aaron to look at Jerome, or Jerome to look at Aaron and say, your experience today is invalid because it's not like mine. How are we doing so far? Seriously, how are we doing so far? Take a breath. I mean it. Take a breath. You know why I'm doing this today? I'm doing it because I believe we can do this. I do. I really believe we can have a conversational life in the church. I believe it. So let's take a little further. When we think about what it means to restore conversation in a tense world, we've got to go to Scripture. Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders, said, you brood of vipers. 
How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So everybody out loud together that last phrase of Jesus. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So let's do this. We're going to say indifferent, slightly different. Ready? We're going to say in, and then we're going to pause. And then we're going to say different. Ready? In, different. You do that with your own hand motions. Ready? I'm going to use mine. You use yours. Ready? In, different. In, different. Yeah, Jesus said that's the only thing, that, that's the only way this thing works. Because you see, emotion precedes cognition. If you can't put love in front of law, you're never going to have a conversational life. If you can't put being right with each other ahead of being right about a topic, you're never going to get this right. So the reality is, Jesus said, you're going to have to do something on the inside. He wasn't done. He had more to say. He said, a good man brings the good things out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. How many of you feel like that the line is going to be out the door of Peter's gate? Right? It's going to take forever to go through all of this, except for the fact that those who are in Christ Jesus have no condemnation, so we'll speed up the line. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, how many of you think, man, that's intense? So being in different matters, look at how Luke uh, uh, records it. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. So people don't pick figs from thorn bushes and grapes from briars. So a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So it becomes really important, what? For my heart to what? Be full of God, full of Christ, full of the Spirit, and full of love, because my mouth is going to reveal what's going on inside. Right? So notice how James picks up on this. I don't know what it was like to be the brother of Jesus, but you write good books if you grew up with him. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings. You've been made in God's likeness. Now, the same mouth come praising and cursing, and my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? What's the answer? Correct. Uh, James said, you got it. My brothers and sisters, hey, another question, pop quiz. Can a fig tree bear olives? Can a grapevine bear figs? So what's the answer? Salt spring cannot produce fresh water. So if there's something wrong on the inside, you're not going to cure it by words. Who is wise and understanding than among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about or deny the truth. A story. So I was 26 years old. I was living in Ohio. My wife and I are young in ministry. And there are these two terrific guys at the church my age, Kirby and Jeff. All right? And so uh, both of them are athletic, musical, handsome. They're uh, uh, husbands, they're fathers. And, and Jeff looks like the marble man. I mean, it's just they got everything, right? One night, 
in uh, December of, of uh, 1986, they came to my house. Now, on Tuesday nights, we had a, a Bible study for about 12 guys, but only two of them showed up, Kirby and Jeff. They showed up at the house. And they said, hey, uh, we have something we want to talk to you about. How many of you feel good when someone shows up and says something like that? It just, right, then something happened in your stomach, like, this, this won't be good, right? So they come in, okay, nine, you know, so they told all the other guys not to come. We go in, we sit down, they get to the point. They look right at me and said, we could be better friends if you'd let us. Hmm. Well, before I could say anything, right, they said, did it ever dawn on you that if we only wanted friends like each other, we already had each other? Nope. And I'm slowly realizing that they like me better than I like me. So I said this to them. Now, I'm 26 years old. I said to them, well, the problem is I'm jealous. And you must feel awful. <laughs> Just say that out loud to peers. I felt like I was like in middle school. But you know why I said I'm jealous? Is because it was true. I was. It got worse. It, it got worse. And I said, and when you guys ask me if I'm okay, and I say, yeah, I'm just being quiet, I'm not being quiet, I'm pouting. I told you it got worse. It was awful. And I actually said those words, jealous and pouting. Who says this at 26? Who even says that at five unless your mom makes you confess? How many of you think, man, that had to feel awful? It did. But it was true. And it was liberating. Because having spoken the truth, guess what? I didn't lie about it, and I didn't deny it. I had selfish ambition and bitter envy in my heart, and it was ruining the relationship. Now, you know what I could have said? It's your fault. But what did I know? It wasn't. I was jealous, and I was proud. You do not have to raise your hand or confess. I just want to know. Have any of you recognize a relational barrier because you were jealous of someone. And the idea of telling them felt like it would make it worse. Or even, even with someone in your family, you know, when they know you're pouting and you know you're pouting, but you just don't want to say the word. Anybody? Don't, you don't have to think that's up. Can you imagine, those of you that are elders, just having coffee with a fellow elder and saying, you know what, I know for a while I've really been hard to get along with, and part of the reason is I'm just jealous. People seem to like you better. You seem to have a little more influence than I do. From a distance, it looks like your family's easier to navigate. Wouldn't it be something to just say that? Recently, I had an opportunity to be a part of a, a nationally televised event in Atlanta. 
I had to take two COVID tests leading up to this. This is back in the winter. Of all things, my COVID test failed. I'd made it for two years of this fest. My COVID test failed, and I didn't get to be a part of that national televised event. My wife Susan asked me, she said, how you feeling? And I said, I think it was good because I think I wanted it for some wrong reasons. She said, I think you did too. We've got almost 40 years together this August. I am so glad that I've got someone I don't have to lie to to be okay. You kind of get my feel. I'm trying to be transparent with you because we're in it. We're in it together for like real. That's why I'm sharing this way. James says, "Where you have envious, selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice." Is there a more accurate verse than all the Bible? Isn't it crazy? But the wisdom that comes from heaven, he doesn't end on a sour note, right? It's first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial, right? There's our indifferent, impartial and sincere. Can you imagine how our relationships would be if we could kind of keep these levels pretty strong most of the time, right? Peace doers, peacemakers, peace creators, who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. That's a platinum text, isn't it? And it's helpful, right? Because it kind of grounds us in how we want this thing to go. In preparation for the lectures, I read two books. I reached out uh, one of our current elders and one of our former elders, both of them really important mentors in my life, and they uh, gave me these two books. Now, I'm not telling you that you'll like them as much as I did. They're both research-based. Some of the research actually overlaps in the two books, not a lot, not a ton. The kidney illustration that I gave you is in Collective Illusions. That's where I, I got that. These are very good. Uh, um, Vanessa Bonds is a professor at Cornell University, and I think since one of our elders is a graduate from there, that's why he suggested the book. I'm just putting it out there. But what I begin to learn uh, through the research on this is that people actually have the opportunity to come together if we can learn how to have conversations. So let's look at this. First, conversational life, we are hardwired. I want you to take a very close look at this. Let's do this. I, I thought about this in preparation, so let's do this. Everybody, we're going to take a deep breath in. Ready? Let it out. Now, this time I'm going to count to four, and you hold it at the top, and then we're going to let it out count to four. Ready? Breathe it in. One, two, three, four. Hold it. One, two. Let it out. One, two, three. Why am I doing that? Because we're not in danger in this room. Walking through this doesn't put us at risk. So, conversational life. Number one, hardwired. Humans are hardwired to trust each other. Do you know part of the reason for that? It's our biology. Right? Children are hardwired to do what? Trust their caregivers. Which is why it is so Shocking, painful, disillusioned when people we trust don't come through. Okay? We're hardwired to trust each other. Number two, humans believe that they have better motives, morals, ethics, and intentions than others. This is a very fascinating statistic. They did research on how many people thought that they were ethical. 
97% of them thought they were right. Then they asked, how many of you believe that the people in your town are ethical? 92% of them said that they weren't. Well, I'm not a math major, but by the statistically, this is impossible. Isn't that hilarious? And, it, and this is all over the world. So people are like, 97% of them said, you can trust me. And then they said of their neighbors, you cannot trust 92% of them, which were all saying, you can trust me. It's amazing. Humans congregate with people who present similarities because of the positive reinforcement of identity and security. I know we've said birds of a feather flock together, but this is why. Because it reinforms identity and gives us a sense of security. The people that we are with, they're the better group, so they're the safer group. Our brains can serve energy, relentlessly prioritizing what we need to know. Those of you that know this about eyesight, the amount of bits of information our eyes can take in is thousands of times more than what our brains can process into an image. So we can take it in, but we can't do anything with it. It would be like standing out in front of Sherwin-Williams and having them dump a hundred paint cans over your head, and as they dump them, you paint a Van Gogh. <laughs> Does that help? It's impossible. So I want you to think about this. Number two, conversational life. Let's talk about opinions. Can you read these? Okay, good. Number one, you do not have to have an informed opinion on it. You're like, oh, thank the Lord. You don't. Number two, your informed opinions are incomplete. You actually don't know everything about anything. And everything that you think you're an expert in, that's arrogance. It's just arrogance. We have one of the top cancer doctors in the nation that is a part of our church. He was the head of the Emory Cancer Center and then got recruited to go to MD Anderson. He's brilliant. He told me, he said, it would be impossible for me to serve my patients if I wasn't on a team. It'd be impossible. How many of you would feel comfortable if you had a doctor that kept you from going to any other doctors because that doctor knows more than every other doctor you've ever known? And forbid you for doing it. Can you imagine trying to work on that model in today's medical world? What would you say? You're nuts. So, your informed opinions are incomplete. Uh, number three, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Number four, you don't have to share your opinion on anything. <laughs> Somebody asked me, what do you think of such and such a kind of car? I look at them and say, well, what do you think? And most of the time, they'll tell me. Then I'll say, thanks. <laughs> I'm a mechanic. I went to school to be a mechanic before I ever went to college. Being a mechanic is my golf. But I don't have to have an opinion on every car. And I don't have to have an opinion on every truck. And I don't have to have an opinion on why people like the opinion they like about that car. I just don't have to share it. Uh, next, you do not have to connect your identity to your opinions. You can have an opinion and then later think to yourself, man, that wasn't a very good one. <laughs> and you're fine. Next, you don't have to be opinionated to have integrity. Now that's an important one, isn't it? Because we think that if I have an opinion, it has to be right or there's something wrong with me. 
Right? It has to be right or there's what? Something wrong with me. No, you're fine. That opinion just wasn't a great one. I mean, that's it. Think about the war in Ukraine. You're, I, I don't know if anyone from our church is in here, but some of our leaders in our church are from Russia. Our son Aaron and his wife were missionaries in Russia. Our granddaughter, first granddaughter, was born in Russia. So one of the things we clarified for the church is watch your language. Don't talk about what the Russian people are doing. Because a whole bunch of our friends in Russia have actually either went into hiding or left the country so that they can protest the war through the only means they have, which some of them brilliantly created apps to get around government restrictions so they could share news about the war so that they could invade their own country with truth. So one of the leaders of our church said, watch your language. Think about it. Next, when you affirm an opinion, you don't have that when you affirm an opinion you do not hold, your sense of belonging is compromised. When you act like you agree with something, just to keep the peace or to, to feel like that if you said something that you'd kind of be kicked out, which you might, in our culture you might, right? You realize that does something to you. It does something to you. I want to tell you a story. I started a preaching. We, we moved to Atlanta 25 years ago, and it wasn't long into it. I was sharing, kind of like I'm sharing today, and I had a very well-meaning elder uh, have a meeting with me after, and he said, Don, it isn't good for you to confess your sin publicly. People will lose respect for you. I know he meant well, but what do I understand from the Scripture? You confess your sins so that you'll what? Be healed, right? So I knew I don't want to actually compromise my spiritual healing to present myself in a way that's not real. How are you doing on that one? Right? Wouldn't it be something if you knew you could share who you are and that someone else had the wherewithal to care enough about you that they would receive it? I told our kids growing up, I'd rather know exactly where you are, even if I don't like it, than for you to think you have to fake it to be loved in this family. Amen. What a horrible way to live. Right? So opinions matter, don't they? What about engagement? You don't have to respond with a particular emotion if it doesn't serve you, God, or the other person now. If something upsets you, you don't have to give full vent to that to be authentic or real. Sometimes we're not in a good space to share our emotions. Can we agree to that? It's just not a good time for you. To share your emotions, you might feel like, well, if I shared them right now, I'd, I'd blow it. So I don't want to do that. You don't have to double down on an opinion, an emotion, or an action you've already taken if it doesn't serve you, God, or the other person well. If you did something and it didn't turn out very well, don't keep doing it just so you can appear consistent. If it didn't work out, then just be like, well, that, one, that didn't work out very well. Right? Number three, 
You can apologize and request the opportunity to try again if you believe you could serve yourself, God, another better and different response. My neighbor, Jim. So I could tell something went wrong. Jim and I are same age. I'm a few years older, but very close to the same age. Have a ton of fun together. Close, you know, drive up. Hey, what's up? What's up? Roll on the window, always stop and talk to each other. Jim quit doing that. I thought, what in the world is going on? Right? I couldn't figure it out. So I walk down. I walk up the steps to Jim's house. I knock on the door. Jim answers the door. And that, that new coldness was there. I looked at him. And I said, Jim, what is the problem? I know you have a problem with me. And you are too important to me to let this go. He said, you killed the moss. <laughs> and my wife liked it. <laughs> now, we have three houses. Uh, these three houses, ours and Jim's and the one between us, share a lawn area and so on like that, right? And I've lived there 15 years. Jim hadn't lived there very long, a couple of years. And I did kill the moss, and the reason I killed the moss is that's the only way to get the fescue to grow in that particular part of it, right? So I said, Jim, I'm sorry. And I said, Jim, I'll do anything I can to get that moss to grow back. Now, you know what I knew in my mind? That moss is coming back no matter what I do. It is, <laughs> it is so freaking resilient. I don't know what to do with the moss. You could blow it up, and it would find a way to come back. How many of you have something like that? Uh, I couldn't believe it. I thought, we're good to go. I could die today, and the moss will come back, and Jim will thank me from beyond the grave, right? And so I said, Jim, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. I should have talked. He said, thanks. Well, a little while later, COVID hit. And Jim got hit with a big challenge. The accounting company that took care of his company and two others had a person that worked for them who committed fraud. And it impacted Jim's company and those two other companies. There were 62 audits. 62 audits that held up those three companies and nearly bankrupted them while they had to go through this huge mess. I met Jim down in the driveway one day. He said, you got a minute? And he told me what happened with his business. I said, yeah. I said, do you want to pray about it? You can. I said, I will. He said, right now? I said, well, yeah. He said, I gotta close my eyes. <laughs> I said, you can do whatever you want. So I prayed. A couple, about a week later, we're down there again. He said, You've been talking to the man upstairs for me? I said, I have. I said, Jim, I think you should talk to the man upstairs. He said, Well, what would I say? I don't know. But I think you should talk to him. He said, Well, I'm not gonna. I said, well, he'll be waiting. He's listening right now. <coughs> kind of throwing him off a little bit. But pretty soon, Jim admitted that he was starting to try to talk to the man upstairs. Well, this is very COVID, so we're online. And I noticed one Sunday morning that I see that him and his wife have joined our service online. Right? I spot So I send a little private message, and I said, hey. What are you doing sneaking into church like this? <laughs> you put a little smile on your face. 
smiley face that he saw that I saw that he saw that I saw. <laughs> well, this kept going on. And pretty soon, you know, a year and a half later, Jim came to me. He said, Don, we're, we're going to have to move. He said, my mom and dad are failing. They live up north quite a ways. We're going to buy a place up there. We've got to move. That broke my heart. But I said, I understand. So they moved. But Jim kept coming back. And Jim kept texting me, he said, Don, the thing I miss most is driveway church. <laughs> and they're still coming to church online. Last week, he critiqued my sermon. He sent me a private message. You're looking down at your notes too much. <laughs> His wife texted me. She said, you realize that Jim doesn't tell other people he loves them. Jim told me it was me. Jim doesn't have to have a name for the God we serve to be loved by the God we serve. And Jim can call him the man upstairs and God doesn't care. God's just glad that Jim knows God believes in Jim. If I had doubled down on the opinion about the mosque, I'd missed driveway church. And driveway church matters to me more than being right about the mosque. Okay? You don't have to continue talking with people who are not ready to engage with you in a healthy way. Did you see Jesus do this? You remember a group of religious leaders came up to Jesus and they said, Hey! What authority do you have to do this stuff? Okay, Jesus said, well, I'll get to that. Let me ask you something. What do you think of John? You remember this? So do you remember what they do? They huddle up. You remember the story? They huddle up. And, they, and what's hilarious is the gospel writers reveal what they say in the huddle. They say some of them said, okay, if we say that John's from God, Right? But he's going to ask it. Well, what did you do? Do it again. And somebody else says, yeah. But if we say John wasn't from God, we're going to make all the people mad. Okay, so what are we going to do? Tell them. Okay. They come back over and they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, okay, well then I'm not going to tell you either. <laughs> you guys remember this? That is so liberating. Someone asked me a question, not because they care about me, my church, or my family. They just want to do damage, and I don't have to talk with them. I'm not obligated. Somebody sent me some nasty message or something. I'm not obligated to respond to that. I'm not obligated. If someone doesn't believe that I'm worth a healthy interaction, then they're not ready for the interaction. You don't have to do it. Okay? And if somebody says, well, what do you think you're doing? I'm being like Jesus. <laughs> you're not ready. Okay. But the last one, you do not have to continue talking with someone if you discover you're not ready to engage in a healthy way. Right? So this started for my wife and I, where several years ago, we were having a conversation at dinner, and I went like this. I, I went like a timeout, you know, like in the uh, athletics. I went just like this timeout. I said, I am not as ready for this conversation as I thought I was. 
She looked at me like, what? I said, I'm telling you, if we keep going, I'm going to blow it. And she stared at me like, well, we could have used this 25 years ago. But I mean, at least we got there, right? So we begin to practice this. Something like this. Ready? Ready? Would you feel respected if I listened, but I didn't try to engage? I didn't try to respond. Would you feel respected? Because I don't think I'm in a place to be able to respond well. But would you feel respected if I listened and didn't try to respond? And then what can she say? Yes or no? She could say, yeah, that would be okay. Or she could say, no, I'll wait until you're ready to respond. Right? Why not? We've got 40 years tucked behind us. Are we in a hurry? <laughs> right? Some of the church. Well, what do you think that's going on in the nation? What do you think's going on in the school board? What do you think's going on, right? And you're like, you know what? I don't think I'm as ready for this conversation as you are. <laughs> Would you feel respected if I listened but just didn't try to respond? You realize this is important, right? Because this is how we're going to get to conversational life, which is going to enrich our congregation life. Can we take a deep breath? I live every day like you do, in a community of people I care about, people that are hurting, people that are loaded up with one cable news network or the other, people that are believing some things from social media that I'm not sure would pass a fact check, and other people, maybe they have it nailed. I don't know. How many of you, does that sound a little familiar to you? Then what are we going to take back? Can we make this thing better? Can we be in 